Welcome to Deep Overstock Presents Origin of Life. This is Mickey Collins. And this is Robert Eversman. Deep Overstock Presents is a new podcast that will feature readings of our quarterly journal as well as our special events. For this Origin of Life series, the authors are reading their own work. This Origin of Life issue is special because it is the start of our second run through PALS. Each issue of Deep Oversight is themed based on a section at Palace City of Books. We do an issue for every room, from pearl to purple and green and orange, choosing a different department category for every run-through. And we are right around the corner from our third year of publishing. May 1st! 2021 will mark three years of Deep Overstock releases. This week, we'll hear Alien Boy by E.T. Starman and Replica by Aaron Karbuski. Our first reader tonight is E.T. Starman, a self-described pulp fanatic. Although he may not be a professional bookseller or librarian, he is a longtime weird tales, amazing stories, and all story collector. A Portland native, E.T. has spent countless hours in a gold room nook at Powell's, pouring through the latest pulp rack covers. E.T.'s work is heavily inspired by Lloyd Arthur Eschbach, Robert E. Howard, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Alien Boy by E.T. Starman In the early stages of childhood development, well-adjusted children will come to the conclusion that they come from their mother. Maladjusted children will look into the darkness of the sky. Maladjusted children, as soon as they can walk, will cover their bodies in tinfoil and run through the house. There was a boy we called Alien Boy, who lived quite differently from the rest of us. He came to class in a special suit. He claimed to speak a different language, which was silence. Whenever we tell him to speak it, He'd focus for a long time, staring at his desk. He'd go completely silent, stare at his desk, and try not to blink until he was crying, until we got bored and turned back to class. Once I was the last to turn back, I watched him until his eyes were so open his nose began to run. When my mother and I first pulled into the driveway where Alien Boy lived, His mother was out front taping black garbage bags over the windows which looked out onto the streets. My mother called her over to the van. She had not yet unlocked the child lock to the back door. Alien boy appeared in his earth suit wearing goggles. He put his hands on my window, as if I were in some orbiting pod. I see you're blacking out your windows, my mother said. Is it because creeps run around this neighbourhood? I distinctly remember it. Creeps. Creeps, said his mother. Yeah, are people looking in your windows? His mother looked at the garbage bags and duct tape in her hands as if she was suddenly surprised. Oh no, she said. It's because of the light. My son is light sensitive. It was an overcast day. Mom, I said, unlock the door. She waited. She had his mother on one side and Alien Boy on the other. She unlocked the door, and I slipped out into the small space between their parked minivan and our idle one. Alien Boy placed my hand in his. They were slippery. At school, we learned something new every day about Alien Boy. We learned that he would die if he dried out, so his mother had made him the earth suit to keep him moist. 
It's because he was often caught crying speaking his language and was eventually given green goggles that obscured his eyes. He kept eggs in his desk, which he took out periodically to rub with Vaseline. Brian, whose father was a dead airplane mechanic, took one of the eggs and pushed Alien Boy away. Did this come out of your butt? Brian said. He held the egg, which was not hard like a chicken egg, but malleable, like a sandwich bag full of water. It contained a noose. Brian popped it in his hands and it exploded in class. Then, Alien Boy spoke his secret language more clearly than ever. I am the inevitable destruction of the cosmos, he said. Brian's hands covered in ooze, he rubbed his hands off on Alien Boy's earth suit. Alien Boy, also covered in ooze, had barely touched Brian's shirt when he was pushed onto the floor. Alien Boy felt his teeth and there was blood in his mouth. He let his hands fill up with blood. When he stood up, Brian had already turned his back. He came up behind Brian and rubbed his hand full of blood around his mouth. Brian, unconsolable, was taken home. Alien Boy was suspended a week. He slept with his windows completely covered over with trash bags and duct tape because the dark star told Alien Boy that he was bad. It was a black circle, a star covering one of the stars in Sagittarius. It spoke to him through his windows. You're bad, Alien Boy. You're bad. You're bad. So his mother covered the windows up. On the inside, his windows had both blinds and drapes, and now the outside was taped. Ten bags each window, he said. It's as thick as a sweater. No light can come in? Certainly not the dark star. Is that a relief or is that a relief? I remember his house was full of eggs. They were in the closets. They were under the beds. He took me everywhere to show me where he'd hid them. Sometimes we could reach them. He'd put them, green and slimy with Vaseline, into my hands. Sometimes they were too far back, and even with a magazine, we couldn't get them out. The Dark Star told me, he said, that the eggs were going to start the invasion, that he wouldn't let me stop the invasion. I had to keep making him eggs. But now that my windows are dark, I can't hear him. I don't have to make any more eggs. We stared at two eggs he held in his hands. He leaned towards his hands like he was going to kiss them. He didn't kiss them. He didn't smell them. He held them in his hands and then rolled them back under his mother's bed. At school, the edges of cartons of strawberry milk became sticky like Alien Boy. The buttons to water fountains, the undersides of clocks, and the backs of dry arrays border erasers became sticky like him. He told us that he would go up to meet the Dark Star. He knew that it would have to happen soon. The blacked out windows only lasted a couple of days. I will have to go up and face the Dark Star, he said. Brian turned around and looked at Alien Boy over the back of his chair. He began to communicate with Brian silently as he turned back around and never looked at him again. I'm not a regular form of life, he told me. He had been pulled out of the classroom to vomit into a black plastic bag, not unlike the garbage bags his mother had taped over his windows. Alien Boy took two eggs from his pocket. I want you to have these, he said. I did not want to take them, but he put them into my hands. They were dry, almost dry. I have to go. I have to face the dark star, he said. I'm sorry. That was E.T. Starman reading Alien Boy. 
Closing tonight's reading is Aaron Karbuski, a lead bookseller at Powell's Books and an avid reader and book collector. Her mission as a bookseller is to unite each person with the perfect book for them, so that they may grow to love reading as much as she does. She resides in the Pacific Northwest with her husband, their cat, and a head full of stories aching to share with the world. The Replica by Erin Karbuski. She was sitting behind the receptionist's desk, reading a book about a waitress in New York. The novel centered heavily on food, and she could feel every morsel of it on her tongue. Her stomach growled and she salivated. She hadn't eaten a proper meal in days. Maybe it wasn't a good idea to read this just then, but it had taken all she had to abandon it in the morning to get ready for work, so she promised herself she would sneak in some reading. Her boss wouldn't be in until twelve. She had hours. Maybe she could even finish it. And by then, it wouldn't matter that she was hungry, because her sister was treating her to a meal at the Italian place down the street. Huge portions. Leftovers for days if she was conservative. But then he walked in. Blue eyes. Chestnut hair. Looking like he had health insurance and good genes. When the bell above the door chimed, she started to give the standard spiel of a greeting. But as soon as she saw him, really saw him, she dropped it mid-sentence. She wished she had a mirror. Surely her hair was a mess. Definitely, there was lipstick on her chin. You put your best work in the lobby, he asked. Huh? He pointed at her. Was he flirting? The painting behind you. It's gorgeous. Oh. No, it's not. I made that. It was how she got the job. These days, you had to have more than credentials. Experience, the right kind. Education, the best kind. And the extras. Internships, study abroad. She had none of those things. Technically, she wasn't even qualified to work at the art gallery, but she'd been desperate. The night before the interview, drunk and not a little high, she'd made the painting. Purple, orange, and gold paint splashed across a black background. It was gauche. It was garish. It was perfect, the director had said, and he hired her on the spot. It was terrible pay, but the work was easy and the hours were great, so sometimes she didn't eat. She could live with that. How much, the man was asking. Hmm? She said, sipping her Dunkin' Donuts. The painting. Six figures? He leaned in. Seven figures? I could do four million. That's the highest. She snorted her iced coffee out through her nose. Sold, she said, even though the painting was now property of the gallery. I'm Ramona. I'm David. Hours later, Maggie arrived to take Ramona to lunch. She was gone, along with the painting that hung behind the desk. The story goes that boy meets girl, they fall in love, or he rescues her. Marriage, babies, bed death, real death, and then some freedom before the widower-widower dies. Not so for David and Ramona. They would each be each other's own personal hell but we do not have two hours traffic here. I've told you the beginning, and I'll tell you the end. The middle is long, and we'll have to take shortcuts. See, a terrible misunderstanding, or a trio of liars. Maggie lies for Ramona. David lies to Ramona. 
Ramona likes to say she lies for self-preservation, but really, she just lies. It starts with a trip to Tobias, months after the tragic loss of a much-wanted child. When Ramona tells Maggie where she's going, Maggie balks. Like marionettes, Inc., she says with a flat voice, the story we read in school. You don't believe me? Come and see for yourself. The next day after that, Margaret was there with Riley, her son, on her hip. At lunch, Riley dipped his fries in ketchup and painted the paper placemat until it was soggy wisps of paper. Every coup, every cry he made went straight through Ramona, like she like she was... Every coup, every cry he made went straight through Ramona, like she was the soggy paper. I'm just saying, you aren't scared? That man is the stuff of nightmares. Maybe once, but now he's the key to my dreams. How will you explain it when David comes home and there's a... a baby? You'll get it in a few weeks. It's not even enough time for you to have recovered, gotten pregnant, and given birth. Even if David goes along with your plan, you know the neighbors will question it. Who are you, Mom? Ramona held up two fingers for two more margaritas. She would not be talked out of it now. She was in too deep. On a nondescript Tuesday morning, the package arrived. She was startled, as if it were a surprise. How her heart quickened when the doorbell rang. Her anxiety threatened to burn a hole in her chest. Thank you, she shouted to the driver as he walked down the driveway, back to his truck to deliver his other packages. She wondered how many other babies he had in his vehicle. He might have been a stork. She brought the package to the coffee table and set it down. She eased the scissors through the slit lined with tape and flung aside the cardboard flaps. She started to weep when she saw it, a symphony starting up in her ribs, filling the hole of dread. Inside the package was the most realistic non-baby she'd ever seen. Swathed in a pink onesie, the overhead light trembling on its glass-blue eyes. The nursery, fully outfitted cradle and all, would be unoccupied no longer. The baby was here. Now, David would have to stop begging her to dismantle the shrine. Now, she was buzzing with wholeness. Are you sure he's here? Maggie had asked. Ramona pointed toward the flickering candle on the desk. In the illuminated room, jars of eyes, legs, arms, and torsos of every color littered the wooden shelves behind the desk, while fully put-together babies stared at them from behind their glass cases. They were as terrifying as they were realistic. And then, where just a second ago there was nothing, Tobias appeared behind the till through the purple velvet curtain, which was now fluttering behind him. She held out a hand and introduced herself. Ramona, and this is Margaret, my sister. That's not one of mine, is it? Tobias interrupted, pointing at sleeping Riley. Definitely not, answered Margaret, and she moved to put space between them. There was a flicker of understanding in Tobias's eyes, and he turned to face only Ramona, as if she were the only person in the room. When did it happen, the loss? 
Very recently. Too recently, Margaret said under her breath. Excuse me, Ramona said to Tobias and turned to her. I thought you were on my side. I always am, she said, but I don't always agree with you. I'm here to support you, but... Do you have any photos? Tobias inquired. Ramona opened her purse and produced a packet of drugstore prints. These are the only photos I have. Please return them to me when you're done. Six weeks, he said, and in return... Six weeks, he said, in return, and turned once more toward the purple curtain. How much? She called out, but he didn't say a word. Bill me later, she thought. Satisfaction and curiosity tumbled like butterflies in her stomach. Upon its arrival, the box was empty of photos, but Ramona had forgotten them. Tenderly, she slipped the baby out of the box and removed the cheesecloth that protected it from dust and damage. It looked exactly like the real Esme, dark wisps of chocolatey brown hair covering the forehead. The skin was pale, almost translucent, revealing blue veins, quintessential pink rosebud lips. The cat came to see the baby, but recoiled when it caught sight of the thing, an uninvited alien. Ramona reached out to pet her, but she trotted away, wailing through the halls, howling like a wolf, until she was too far away to hear her. Ramona picked up the baby and brought her to the nursery and laid her down in the crib. David came roaring into the house. Almost delirious from today's activities, Ramona came toward him, laughing. Do you have a fever? he asked. David had taken to speaking in a flat, grim voice. His sadness came with anger bubbling under the surface like a snake rattling its tail. Ramona shuddered. She hadn't prepared him for the replica, and now she wasn't sure how she would. She busied herself making dinner while she worked through her latest painting in her head. Once she had surrendered to the probability that she would never amount to anything, creativity flowed freely through her veins. When judgment flew out the door, freedom breezed in. Looks good. David spoke at the meal instead of to his wife. I need to talk to you, said Ramona at the same time. Her presence annoyed him. His scared her. At dessert. She bought them both time. The wound of loss had not yet scabbed over. Whoever imagined, as they said their vows, the territory two people could tread. Sickness and health were broad words loosely interpreted. As dessert dwindled to an end, David looked at her. What's the surprise? What? She barely registered the man ahead of her, shaking in and out of focus like a hologram. There was a lump in her throat. For a moment, he loved her. He took her chin in his hand and moved her face as if he were about to kiss her. I have a lot of work to do, he said after a spell and went to his study, where he often spent another eight hours after work undoing and redoing the day. She took out her confusion on the dishes and then settled in the living room with her journal, eventually falling asleep. For a few hours, there was silence. 
maybe even peace. At the witching hour, she heard the unmistakable cry of a newborn. Probably, she thought, in a stupor, it belonged to one of the neighborhood girls, women, who were always having babies. They taunted her, pushing them in prams proudly, bearing almost no traces of exhaustion on their pristine, made-up faces, looking like French women in stylish clothes and effortlessly coiffed buns. Just as she was about to fall asleep again, another cry rang out. This time, she knew it was coming from within her own house. She stood carefully. The floor was cold and creaky beneath her feet, and she did not want to disturb David. She crept down the hall, the cat following closely at her ankles. The closer she was to the baby's room, the louder the cries became. Ramona darted into the nursery. Something was whimpering in the crib. The pit in her stomach expanded to her throat. Her chest was tight, her eyes welled up. Inside the crib, the baby squirmed and fussed. Reaching inside, she felt a calm wash over her. She pulled the replica out of the crib and sat on the rocking chair. In a dream state, she began to sing. Her song was interrupted by the door swinging open. What the hell is this? David demanded from the doorway. Isn't she beautiful? Is all Ramona said. David pounded on the wall behind her with his fist, his first display of passion in months. The screams of the baby grew louder, as if through a surround sound system. And then David began to cry, his sobs extending out over the baby and his wife. She had wanted the baby so badly, it almost killed her. She didn't realize he was broken too. He had begged her to have an abortion when it became clear the baby wouldn't live. She'd refused and gave birth anyway, the pain of which she never imagined could befall one human being. It was the pain of the whole world. There were tears in the eyes of the baby in her arms now. But this baby isn't real, she told herself. A disembodied voice, only she could hear, whispered back, It's as real as you make it. In one swift movement, David stepped toward his wife and grabbed Esme with his meaty hands. He ran to the window, flung open the screen, and held the baby above the street. Now he was laughing. Cat, she screamed to a figure below. Ramona watched in horror as Esme flew through the air, landing in the arms of a stranger on the street. She didn't care that she was in her pajamas, half-naked under her thigh-length robe. She flew down the hall, unlocked the door, and ran into the road. Give me my baby, she screamed at the unwilling participant in this war. The person held tightly to the baby as Ramona tugged. She pulled hard enough that she released the replica, but overestimated her own strength. The baby flew out of the stranger's hands and into the middle of the road. A car, unknowingly driving through a crime scene, ran over the baby as it rounded the corner. Ramona ran to grab Esme, who was now missing an eye. David walked over from the porch and put his arm around his wife. You're having a meltdown. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you, she thought, made a plan. The next morning, she would be extra affectionate with him, 
not too affectionate as to make him suspicious, but just enough to make him feel safe, normal again. Then, when he was fast asleep in the night, David's eyes fluttered as he breathed deeply, sleeping hard. Ramona almost felt bad, almost stopped herself, until she remembered her baby flying into the street, getting hit by the car, dying, twice ripped from her arms. She couldn't stand it. She would hurt David in the most feral way she could come up with. She gazed down at her red nails in the moonlight, talons really, stilettos. They were bright, cheerful. So was she, as she took her left hand and placed her pointer and middle fingers over David's eyelids, pressing down. In her right hand was the knife, which she plunged into his heart over and over. He didn't even scream. The shop was dark when she pounded on the door, hoping Tobias was the type to live above his storefront. He was creepy, but creepy and shady was exactly what she needed right now. He was creepy, but creepy and shady was exactly what she needed right now. Bang, bang, bang on the door. Please. She couldn't afford for anyone to hear her, to question her. How did a tiny woman like you carry your dead husband down the stairs, into the garage, and sit him in the car like a crash test dummy, and drive at warp speed to Tobias's replica shop at midnight? People gain extraordinary strength in times of need, she would say. A mom holds a car in the air to rescue her child. Ramona carried her husband down the stairs to not be charged with murder. It's all the same. David was in the car still when Tobias came to the door. Stop pounding, he said. You're going to wake them. Wake who? Ramona asked. The other buildings in the area were shops as well. The owners couldn't all live above their stores. But then she saw what he was referring to. Dolls stirred in the windows of his shop. Sweet, sleepy-eyed little babies. What is it that you need at this hour? He prompted. She pointed to the car with the key, hit the unlock button, and the lights sputted on. David, eyeless, stared ahead in the darkness. Do you make husbands, too? That was Aaron Karbuski reading Replica. And that's it for episode three of Deep Overstock Presents Origin of Life. The Origin of Life issue is now on sale through deepoverstock.com. You can also check out our other podcasts, Late Night Poems and the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. And please remember to submit work for our 12th issue, Rose Room Animals, before November 30th. Tune in next week for episode four of Deep Overstock Presents Origin of Life, featuring work from Sue Sue, Jonathan Van Bell, Ben Crowley, and Bob Selcross. Mm-hmm.